Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Legitimus Podcast with its brand new Ultra Technology Hey, we wanted to add a little intro music. That was uh, right straight from NASA right there with all the technology I used straight off my phone. (laughs) What an idiot. Anyways, welcome back to the Legitimus Podcast here on April 20th. Special date for some people out there in the world. Um, We have myself... Mike Miller, and we have also Chris Killinger. So welcome to the Legitimus Podcast, the Miller and Killer Show. So, Keller, it's been quite a week. Obviously, last week we had our podcast. We talked a little bit of shop. We talked about what's been going on. We talked about Winchester and King Cutter and that whole history and the debacle that it has now turned into this week, which we will touch on. But talk to me, buddy. What's going on out in your neck of the woods? Well, just getting... The week started out here in the old uh, homestead. <laughs> Not a lot's changed. We uh, chickens and turkeys getting bigger, and goats are happy. Um, we spent all last week uh, packaging and shipping handles, my wife and I. And uh, while we're at it, I'll just give a special shout out to her because without her help, I would not have gotten all those handles shipped no way she helped a lot so and uh she doesn't notice it but she did it for free (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just kidding that is the best kind of help to have though right yeah yeah no she it it really is um i've said it before she's really stepped up helping me with my little side business and um you know, with the handles and the leather, I've had her out in the shop doing leather work here a couple times. And, you know, like I said, those handles, I, that was, that was a big, big task to package and ship all those handles in a short amount of time. And, uh, without her, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, and I've said, I've always said it, you know, she's very supportive in everything I do, which is huge. Um, you know, without her support, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do what I do because, you know, it's tough. I, I see it a lot. Guys <clears throat> complain that their wife's always on them about what they do or making fun of them or won't let them spend money or this, that or the other. And I can't imagine a life like that, to be honest with you, because it would hinder um, my ability to be creative and, and aggressive and proactive and, um, so it's a big part. So big shout out, Tiff. Thank you. Everybody say thank you for getting my handles, Tiffany. Tiff, this is a virtual high five coming to you right now. Seeing that, uh, that's how we have to do things nowadays. So make sure that she gets that. And to your point, it obviously, that is a very important piece of that overall equation. If you're looking at her, if you want to say it that way, uh, you got to have that support and the, uh, you know, just the understanding, I guess. So to follow up with that, you know, poor Shannon, I've told a couple guys this week, like she knows more about axe history than probably a lot of guys right now. And that's not by, it's not by like her own will or anything. Like I just will be just walking around the house. I'll be like, why did Kelly Axe do that? Or what was American tool company thinking? Or like, 
yeah. freaking like Warren, like what were they doing at this particular time? So like she's familiar with the terms and everything like that, which is uh, surprising that it shows that she is actually listening to me again against her will. But um, it's good to have that support and people that understand that and be able to uh, to help you out. So that's really, really cool. But the thing that I want to know is, uh, you know, so this past week, um, I know that I was on a couple, like the Messer does the Instagram live thing, Phoenix Restorations, you know, a couple different, and he has people on. So you're basically like rock star status now with the handles and everything that comes. These guys, it's like the new crack of the Axe community. So what is it like to be a rock star? Well, you know, I just want to thank all my fans and <laughs> it's everyday life. You know, this, the whole Axe handle thing's been kind of brewing. Um, and I think the word on the street is getting out. People are realizing, hey, Killinger's not joking about these handles. They really are. You know, and I, I had a vision with the handles. And here, it, it, it was just simple. You buy a handle. You get what you expect. And all it needs is hung. Period. You shouldn't have to thin it out. You shouldn't have to settle for um, defects or um grain run out. I'm more more of a grain run out than I am orientation kind of guy. Um I try to make I mean it'd be great if every handle was perfectly straight um grain orientation, but that's just it's difficult to get. So I do allow up to a 45. Nothing's ever been that far. It's more like a 20. And I mean degrees like I don't know how to explain it, but you, you guys that buy handles a lot, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I never send anything out that has uh, twist in it or knots or defects or I try not to. Uh, that's not to say we don't get handles that sometimes make it to their destination and crack. That that has been a concern and an issue in the past. And it's it's all because of the wood drying. But other than that, the vision was like they used to do. I wanted handles like they used to make. And, uh, you know, working with those Amish guys and building up what we've built up, they, they do a good job and people are getting these handles and they're, they're talking about them and it makes other people want them. So it really is taking off and I wish I could get more, but at the other end of the spectrum, you don't really, you don't really want to rush these handles. Because then the quality starts to slip. So I think that you're absolutely right. So the time uh, guys will guys will understand it because you're delivering a quality product to them that not a lot of others can either find or get or have access to. And in today's world, whenever you can get something like that, especially with the quality of those handles, you know, you uh, you get them. They're shipped right to your door. And what more do you want? And to your point, one of the big things is that you don't really have to touch it. Yeah, you know, obviously to get it to fit on whatever axe that you're looking for, you probably have to touch it up a little bit just to hang it. But other than that, you're done. And then whatever else you want to do to it, you're going to, you know, however you're going to, I guess, quote unquote, dress it up or make it yours or oil it or whatever. I mean, you touch that up a little bit to get that thing uh, snug on the eye and you're done, which is to a lot of guys I know that's a piece of that that doesn't really get talked about that much. It sort of gets lost with the quality piece, which to a point it should because the quality is so good, but that ease of just being able to touch that thing up, hang it and uh, wedge it home, man, that's, that's awesome. So. Yeah. One of the things 
one of the things that I, I'd like to tell people is the handles come start with the wood selection and like your normal handle manufacturers take whatever wood they have and they manufacture axes and then or handles and then they just they just make hundreds of them and it's up to you to choose through if you get the option choose through that stack and find the one with the proper grain orientation where my guys won't even make the handle unless they have the right wood because they know I won't buy them. <laughs> I'll, I'll just either, I used to sort them at their place. And now I just take them all and I bring back what doesn't fit the bill. But, you know, we went from in the very beginning looking through six dozen handles and buying a dozen to now getting six dozen handles and taking back half a dozen. So they've come along, you know, come a long way, but that does slow down the process because they're only using the right wood when it comes to my handles, you know, they make other handles and um, I would say hardware store quality, but they sell those locally and I don't really have much to do with them. So are you going to start using the hashtag handle King? No, definitely not. I, I never, think you should. I never even wanted to be in the handle business. Um, this started off as I was just sick of um, our current options or at the time, the current options. And, uh, you know, I, I, through, through connections, I was able to get connected with these guys that make them. And I went to them and I said, Hey, are you guys interested in making a superior product? You know, and luckily the Amish guy who's partners with the, the guy with the lathe is really into vintage axes, not on the level we are because he doesn't have internet. Um, he gets all his information from guys like us. But he does appreciate a vintage axe. And one of the things that he said to me that uh, really stood out when we first started connecting is, you know, they started making um, pitchfork handles their way because all the current pitchfork handles that you buy were too thick and, and cumbersome. So they started making pitchfork handles the way they used to, you know, nice and thin and nimble. So that's what they started their business off of is pitchfork handles. So when I come to them with, with ax handles and I said, Hey, I've got a selection of vintage handles that we can copy. You know, this is how they should be. And here's why. And they were all over it. They, they love it. And, you know, it just continues to go on. And then he's come up with a couple models since on his own, just from recognizing vintage handles and, and the things that we look for. He's come up with a couple things on his own that just he knocked it out of the park. Like their 28 inch handle that he offers, the single bit 28 inch handle, that's something they came up on their own. Um, it wasn't a copy of anything I brought them, and it's a gorgeous handle. Um, but he he took notes from me. I'm like, hey, the pump, the the, the Fawn's foot needs to be bigger. And everybody knows the reason why the Fawn's foots are smaller is is they, they start with a smaller piece of wood and it can only be as wide as that piece of wood. If you start with a bigger piece of wood, you're wasting more wood. Um, but by doing that, you drive up the price and that's why they are a premium price. I pay a premium for them. I, I wish I got them for dirt cheap, but I don't. I pay a premium price for them and then I pass them on to you guys for for as the least amount markup as I could possibly do and still make it worth my time because it is a lot of time and, and aggravation. I have to, 
I have to get compensated for that. So yeah, they're on the higher side of, of axe handles, but they're, they're really a time saver. So I don't know. I worked on an axe last night, a hatchet, and I used a uh, hatchet handle from another company. I won't say who, um, I hung, I hung the hatchet and then I spent another hour, hour and a half thinning the hatchet handle. Like it's a hatchet handle. Why is it so thick? Why is it like a billy club? So, I mean, you, you get what you pay for and you got to choose your battles. If you got more time than money, then, you know, hardware store handles are fine. But if you, if you have, if your time's precious to you, then, uh, you know, spend a little bit more money on your handle. Well said, my friend. That's uh, basically the the nutshell right there is you get what you pay for and quality isn't cheap. Never has been and it never is going to be. So awesome. I know that the handle hysteria will continue and uh, everybody's going to be looking for that next batch to come and um, have to have yourself like a handle handle IG live party or something like that (laughs) with with the hashtag handle king, of course. But I know this, the, the Etsy shop really worked out really well. I was able to track everything really easily and, and ship everything. Um, so if you're, uh, if you're wanting to know when the next handles are, the best thing you can do is follow my Etsy page. And I think it's just Killinger gear. If you look up Killinger gear on Etsy, follow that and it should shoot you a notification when I have uh, new items in the shop. So, and then I'll. As usual, you can watch my YouTube channel. Um, it's just Killinger. And uh, a lot of times when I get handles, I'll make a video that I just got handles. Because the, the YouTube channel is more of a daily vlog type of thing. Very cool. Um, so let's see. So we talked about that. Goats and everything are okay. The goats do not have corona, then I can assume, right? Well, <clears throat> Sniffy was out there sneezing yesterday, so he's, I bet su- you- he's suspect. I bet you that they're immune, though. I mean, you take goats and they'll eat anything on the planet. They'll probably, like, Corona comes to them and they just probably just shove it right off. They're just like, get out of here. Yeah, I think the biggest enemy to to, um, goats is probably worms. Yeah. You know, because parasites, because they they do eat everything. So we we have on a, a, (coughs) excuse me, on a dewormer and preventative maintenance kind of thing, but... Um, other than that, they, they seem pretty resilient. Those guys, they're crazy. I'd move, I moved them not so long ago and, you know, I moved their little hut, have like a little hut that they can go hide from the rain and, and, uh, I didn't throw any straw in there because I thought, well, winter's over. <laughs> and then we got that, that, those cold days and that snow and stuff. And I look out there and the guys, they're just laying out there in the middle of the snow. They're like, ah, whatever. Big deal. Yeah. I tell you, you know, this whole Corona thing is getting it's getting old real quick. I know uh, to your point about the weather, you know, what was it about a week and a half there, maybe even two weeks ago. I mean, for you know the Pennsylvania area here, Western PA. I mean, we had some really good weather. I mean, I I got sunburned at least twice out fishing. Had yeah. gone multiple times out fishing, and you know, just had some basic gear on things like that. And now, like the you know, there was what snow here twice last week, and. The highs are only in like the low, low fifties, you know, upper forties. So I mean, we definitely got spoiled, and I know that that is not helping out, you know, a lot of this cabin fever and stuff like that. I know I'm going uh, pretty much crazy right now and, and looking to do anything that I can, possibly outside and uh, 
you know, just trying to, to bide the time. So hopefully, I know I had said last week, another week or two. So hopefully by the end of this week, we'll have some more stats. We'll have some more data. Uh, Pennsylvania last night just passed where if you're out in public, you got to wear a mask. And if you were trying to en- enter a business, you've got to have a mask on. So we'll see how that goes. I see on the news and stuff that there's been some, uh, some protests. People were, again, they're, they're getting ants in their pants, man. They're getting a little cabin fever and they want to, uh, they want to get this economy rolling. I mean, obviously it's had, uh, some terrible effects on the economy and we need to get that stuff turned around. But at the same time, we've got to be smart as well. So I don't know what that proper balance is. I don't know uh, exactly how they're going to do that, but hopefully here sometime this week, they'll have that. They'll have that planned out and ready to go. So everybody be smart, stay safe, keep the family safe, hunker down, do what you're supposed to, pay attention, and uh, we'll get through this. If the goats can get through it, we can we can get through it. We just got to make sure that the chickens don't get that bird flu or whatever that is. We don't want that. To, we don't want that coming back. But uh, but otherwise, then so let's see. Last week, Winchester and King Cutter. Then right. Yeah. Uh, Good talk about that. A lot of guys responded back in and, you know, didn't know a lot of that info. And we opened up probably more questions than we, than we answered last week, which, uh, I sort of figured was going to happen. Um, and that's my fault for not doing my full in-depth history homework, uh, like I was supposed to. But one of the things I want to talk about before we get into the axe thing is that I just want to say thank you to everybody for the really good reaction on the podcast in the comments that came back and then the guys that messaged me, got a hold of me, emails, whatever it was and helped out with the history piece. And there was a ton of guys helping out, um, just to go down through some names here to make sure that these guys get the props that they deserve. So, uh, David Dennis, big help researching all week. Uh, we probably exchanged a thousand messages. Joe Holland, same thing. Uh, a lot of good help uh, up there in the Northeast. Ryan Landon is like a research guru. Um, he presented me, he, he sent me an email. It was like 50 pages long, like in a PDF format, like he was turning in a research project to Professor Miller. I mean, it, it was absolutely stunning. Uh, a lot of good info in there about the, the early days of Winchester and the King Cutter and the history and what a cluster that it was. Uh, some of the other guys that were helping out in various ways, Nathan Trueblood, as always, uh, Stanley McKinney, we were talking about some different stuff and uh, a craftsman axe that he had unrelated, but we were still talking history, which I'll do all day. Uh, Freebie, Brent Freeman, man, he was helping me out looking at some catalogs. Uh, same with Charles Bell, helping me trying to find some Winchesters in uh, some of the catalogs, especially after 1931. Uh, Zach Summers has one of the uh, the older axes that we will talk about, and he for guys that don't know uh, his niche or what he really likes to collect are the older makers, a lot of the blacksmiths, early 1800s, right up through the late 1800s. And, and he has a lot of those pieces. And we were able to talk about those and what that looked like. Um, and then there's an organization that I didn't even know about. It's called THCKK, and it's on Facebook. And it is all about um, hardware collectors. And the different lines. So, of course, Winchester, King Cutter, Bluegrass, Belknap, all those different hardware lines throughout history and what that historical piece looks like. So I was able to get some information off of those guys and a couple of the historians, enthusiasts through there. We were swapping out emails all week. So my week, uh, as you already know, Killer, I was 
researching, researching, researching. And I'll tell you what, Google is awesome. And it's also scary at the same time, like what you can do on Google now. And I know we talked about this before on one of the other podcasts as far as being able to research and, and how to do things. It is absolutely phenomenal what you can do. I mean, it's it's crazy. So thank you to all of those guys that helped out. And if I left anybody out, I apologize. But um, lots of help, lots of info. And as I always come to the conclusion, we don't know anything. We really don't. It's just, it's crazy what we don't know. So what did you got? What did you think about the whole Winchester King Cutter thing? Uh, it was very interesting. Um, I only had a couple people reach out to me. Uh, nothing really to add, just more of uh, reinforcement on what we talked about. Yeah, so obviously the big question that, that we got is, and what guys want to know is, and as we talked about and you had brought up, is so what we call that Winchester font or that Winchester type that we see on the axes and how it, and King Cutter, you know, those types of axes look very, very similar. Yeah. And so were they coming out of the same place? Did Winchester actually make those? Blah, blah, blah. So let's get going on this while I'm rambling on and, and we'll see. So the basic once over on the Winchester story is, is that, and we talked about this last week. So they come out of World War One. They had various government contracts. They had sold a ton of rifles to the government, and they were basically trying to figure out what they could do. And so they had money to spend, and they wanted to be able to provide a very quality product to the American people, but they wanted to have basic control over everything. They wanted to make it, they wanted to market it, they wanted to sell it, and they wanted to get the profits from it. And so they had uh, come up with this scheme where they were going to buy various manufacturing plants, and that's what they did. They bought anything and everything as far as from a manufacturing facility standpoint that would be sold in their stores. And this idea of the store came about is that they wanted to have that chain of command and they wanted to be able to sell these products. So they come up with this idea that they're going to make all these stores and they're going to be able to sell these stores. And the basic business footprint that it, what it looked like or what the plan was is that any city over 50,000 people would have a verified genuine Winchester store in it run by Winchester employees. If they were to get into a city under 50,000 people, then they would use the distribution and the facilities of already established hardware stores, and then they would give a cut to those uh, hardware places. And that was to try and maximize profits. Well, what they got into is that they basically were too big for their britches, and they were just spending money left and right. And it came to be very quick that the stores were run very inefficiently. Um, they had basically like district managers, they had store managers, and then they had store employees. And they had more employees than they had people actually in the stores buying stuff. So they operated from a loss from the very get-go and all the way up through until the 29, 30, 31 there where we have the dissolution of the, of the original company. But – the idea was, though, is so we're going to have these stores. We're going to make all this stuff. So as we talked about, they buy the Beaver Falls plant, which is near and dear to my heart. It's about 35 minutes away from me. Uh, I finally found where the plant was. Uh, right now, at least from what I know, part of it is just a concrete slab on the ground um, in Beaver Falls. It's right on the river, which makes sense because the point of having that plant in the first place is that they want to have water access for the transportation piece, which at the time 
makes sense. So the uh, other half of the plant, which I think now is has been basically uh, recommissioned by a couple other businesses, I'll have to get to later to see if that actually is or not. But the way that this worked was that in May of 1920, Winchester Repeating Arms purchases a Mac Axe company, and they bought it for $200,000 in capital, which um, that plant – if we look back through the original history of the plant, and obviously I'm the big history guy, so that plant was originally started by a guy named Joseph Graff, G-R-A-F-F, and he started that plant in 1871. And this is where Zach Summers comes in because he has one of those axes, and uh, it's your typical 1800s. It's big, it's thick, it's meaty, and you can tell that it's like what we would call pre-Big Five. Um, Hubbard and Company, a company out of Pittsburgh, they come along and they take over the plant in 1877. American Axe and Tool comes then and they absorb that plant whenever Hubbard joins the American Axe gang in 1889. So they take over that plant and they're basically trying to figure out what to do with it. Now, this is when our boy John Mack comes into play. So John Mack is originally from New York. Um, he takes over the American Axe and Tool Company plant in Jamestown, New York in 1890. He runs that then until uh, 1900, when then John Mack comes. He takes over the Beaver Falls plant in 1900, and he runs that. So then what do we have going on at the plant? They're obviously making things for American Axe and Tool. Uh, from what I can tell, they employed up to 800 guys at this plant, so it wasn't any just little plant. I mean, we're talking blocks and blocks and blocks for 800 guys to work there. So you had the majority of American Axe, um, axes coming out of the Beaver Swalls plant and then also the Glassport plant as well. 1909 then, fire hits the plant and it operates then afterwards at only partial capacity. So for whatever reason, uh, maybe it was because Glassport was the, the hub, it was the big manufacturing place. They don't really do a lot with the plant from what I can tell after 1909, but it still does operate. 1912 then, Kelly Axe Manufacturing Company buys the plant. Why that is, this is one of the questions that Shannon got just pounded with all week. Like, what, what is Kelly doing? Why did they buy it? They immediately turn around and then sell it to John Mack. He then makes the Mack Axe Company in 1912, which then it turns around and gets sold to Winchester in 1920. And then this is where things get murky as far as what happened. Depending on what you read, who you talk to, where the info comes from, the timeline, stuff like that, we don't really have this nailed down yet, and I can't get anywhere with it because, obviously, with everything going on with corona, I can't get into the courthouse records. Um, they only have online records from 19, what did I tell you, 57 and, and up. They don't have anything online from 57 and back. They do have the records, but you have to go there, and obviously everything is shut down with corona time. So... We don't really know then how long that uh, they ran the factory for. But what I was able to do is I was able to get a hold of a couple of Winchester historians, and they told me about a gentleman by the name of Edwin Pugsley, who was uh, an employee of Winchester. Started with them in 1911 and uh, you know went to MIT, and basically he worked at every single piece of the Winchester um, operation, manufacturing stores, things like that because he was being groomed for uh, a management role in Winchester. So he says then that in um, 1915, then he takes over as a manufacturing engineer 
1920, he takes over as a plant superintendent, and he was in charge of supplying all the new Winchester stores with all their stuff. Uh, in his history, then, he says that Winchester purchased the Mac Axe Company and that all production, except for large axes, was moved to New Haven. So when they say large axe, I'm taking that a single bit and double bit. Again, I don't know that for a fact yet. But this is very interesting because now we're saying that we got axes and to throw a wrench into this whole entire thing, now they're made in two spots, potentially. He states that they manufactured the large axes in Beaver Falls for several years and eventually moved all production to New Haven and then sold that plant to Kelly Axe. When that was, I don't know. I can't find any record of it, and to this point, nobody else can. So, again, I don't know if that is actually true. Um, now, there's another gentleman called Harold Williamson, and he was actually commissioned by Winchester to write a book for them. And the book is actually pretty popular. It's called How the West Was Won, which Winchester gets a lot of uh, credit for that for their rifles, uh, especially the repeating rifle, hence the name of the company, blah, blah, blah. And according to him, he says that uh, all equipment in production was moved to the New Haven plant and the plant in Beaver Falls was closed down. So you got two people within Winchester or had really good access to Winchester and you get two different stories from them. So you can see how the week had basically started off with the research. So now, who knows, right? The other thing that we can't figure out is that what happened then in 1931. So we talked last week then, if we're talking about Winchester and Kingcutter, they obviously come together with their merger. And what, what was going on there is that Winchester had started off, they're buying these companies, they wanted to produce everything, and they wanted to have these stores. So they were on the manufacturing side of stuff. You had E.C. Simmons based out of St. Louis with their very popular King Cutter brand. They were in the hardware game. They were into distribution. They, for the most part, had the vast majority of all their products made for them by other companies. They put the King Cutter logo. They put the, C the Simmons brand on it, and then they sold it in stores. They sold it through, they sold it through the catalogs, etc. And they had a very, very firm grip on the hardware industry. So Winchester, right off the bat, like I said, they're losing money, and they decide then that they're going to merge with E.C. Simmons, which at the time they were major competitors. If you read the various articles and things, E.C. Simmons hated Winchester because they thought that they were trying to basically get in on their space in the hardware line. So Simmons sort of reluctantly went into business with Winchester. They thought it was going to be a good idea. So you get the Winchester Simmons company. That is then when you, we start to see the Winchester and those King Cutter axes with that same font with like what we talked about last week then, right? You know, Winchester trademark made in USA, King Cutter up at the top made in USA. Now, one of the things that we found though with this is that those ones that are marked King Cutter with that font, if you look on the bottom of the eye, especially on the larger axes, they're dated. They'll have an actual stamp in there. Like the one double bit I has, it's stamped 228. So the common thinking here is, is that they were made, that axe was made in February 28. And I don't, did we mention that last, last week? I don't think we did, did we? No. Okay. So for you guys that have those King Cutter axes out there that we think were made during this time, take a second, look at it, and see if that is stamped underneath there, especially wow. if, you, if you have a larger axe. I'll have to look so, at mine. Um, to my knowledge, not every single one is, but a lot of them are. 
Now, supposedly that is on some of the Winchester axes too. All the Winchester axes I have are not stamped that way on the bottom. Um, I don't know exactly what that means yet. That's something that we're still digging in on, but it's interesting that that, that, that date is stamped in there. Now, Winchester and Simmons thing, this all basically goes, goes south. Winchester is still bleeding money. Simmons doesn't want to have anything to do with them. So 1929, then they say, listen, we're going to just go our separate ways. They go their separate ways. 1931 rolls around. Winchester is still bleeding money and they, um, basically go into bankruptcy. That is what for sure we don't know then what happened with manufacturing after that, at least for right now. Simmons, um, still went on. Um, they were still having their axes. Now the assumption here is, is that they were made by Kelly. Kelly gained that contract after 1931. Uh, the reason for thinking that is that you see the King Cutter, the Simmons axes and the Kelly axes very prominently in their catalogs, which would make one believe that there was a relationship there from a business standpoint doing those axes. Um, I, you know, man had the original King Cutter, um, EC Simmons contracts. Uh, I've been able to see some very awesome products, uh, paperwork and stuff like that this week that corroborates that. But what happened after this whole Winchester Simmons thing? I don't know. Again, we're looking at after 1930. So what happens in 1930? American Fork and Hoe buys Kelly. They wanted an axe making division of their, um, garden tools, etc. So it would make sense then that Kelly is obviously the dominant force. Simmons is the dominant force in hardware, so they're probably able to give them the best contract price to be able to make those axes. So it makes sense that Kelly made the axes after 1931. What I can't find now is any Winchester axes in any catalogs after 1931. So now can we say that Winchester axes were made from 1920 to 1930? They're in an EC Simmons catalog that I have in 1930. So we got about a 10 year window for Winchester axes being made as far as what I can tell right now. Is that a hundred percent true? I don't know. We got to figure that out, but that's where we're at. So a lot of more questions sort of came with this than actual answers that we were able to figure out. And my hands are sort of tied right now because I can't get into the places that I need to get into in order to try and put an end to this. So, that's sort of what we got for right now, but it's very, very interesting that, you know, I know myself growing up knowing about the name Winchester and it obviously had a history, um, you know, the wild West, things like that, how the West was won. from what I've read and everything. Winchester was an absolute debacle after world war one, man. Like if they would have just stuck to making guns, who knows what would have happened, but somehow they got a couple guys in charge. Their heads were too big for them. They decide that they're going to take over this whole entire, like, home hardware store um, piece of the market to be able to, to deliver to consumers. And it all goes south immediately. What a cluster. So that's sort of where we're at. What do you think about that? Did I get you anywhere? Did I, uh, are you just like, I don't know what you're talking about, Mike. It's just more mystery. <laughs> it is. That's the, that's the thing with axes. Like, I don't know that, I don't know that you could ever put anything to rest with axes. It's, it's very telling. So I had some great conversations. I, I was in contact with a couple of the historical societies down in West Virginia talking about Kelly and they are very excited. So I have some visits planned for them once we get post Corona. 
Uh, a couple of the local historical societies here in Western Pennsylvania, same thing, reached out to them. Um, they have information uh, from what they are telling me that can help to shed some light on this. But um, I can't get to them, obviously, because of Corona. So this is going to take a little bit of time. So we will be revisiting this on, on the podcast as more info comes to light. But what I know is that myself and these guys that I already mentioned um, spent the better part of this week researching this stuff and finding stuff. And I don't know if we really got any farther than, than what we what we knew last week. Uh, we got a lot more detail. We got some dates and we got some names and stuff like that, which is what we need and um, which is very telling. What was also interesting is that the, the people from Winchester and, and Kingcutter that I've talked to for the most part really don't give two whips about axes. They're, they're about the guns and they're about the advertisements and they're about anything that has either Winchester or King Cutter on it. But for whatever reason, they really don't care about axes or hatchets or anything like that, which I get. I'm not really into Winchester guns. I'm not into King Cutter, you know, meat grinders. So it's just an interesting, uh, how it all comes from each individual's perspective and what they like and what they don't like. But as far as being able to get really any kind of concrete evidence or, or info, uh, I got a little bit, but I guess maybe I was hoping that there was just going to be this big hidden treasure chest and it was going to get opened up and like all this information about the plant and Winchester and, you know, what they did, why they did it. Like that's, it's just not there. So we'll see what happens. I think probably, <clears throat> excuse me, the way I, the way I look at it is Winchester's main gig was guns. So, Obviously, um, the direction a lot of companies go is they start merchandising. You know, maybe, yeah, they're successful with guns, but maybe we can sell lunch boxes with our name on it. Maybe we can sell ammo with our name on it. Maybe we can sell axes with our name on it. You know, and you see that over and over. Um, I think Kiss the Band was probably king of that. Yes. <laughs> merchandising their brand, you know? Absolutely. Yep. Good point. So a lot of it just gets lost in translation. Like, you know, yeah, it's something they did. They made axes or whatever, but it was just an afterthought. It was just a way of getting another avenue to get their name out there. And um, the axes would go would co- coincide with guns, you know, obviously outdoorsmen doing outdoors things. You're going to need hatchets and knives. I mean, there's Winchester knives, right? Oh, yeah. There's basically anything that you want to find. Winchester had their name on it. I was really amazed at looking through their history and the paperwork and the advertisements, the stuff that has Winchester name on it that I had no no idea about. And it, it's on it's on everything. Yeah. Uh, same with King, King Cutter and Simmons, man. I mean, they had their name on on anything that they thought that they could sell. And so Winchester, a couple of the interesting things is so they had a refrigerator line that they tried to do and it was an absolute disaster. And then they tried, what was it? It was a washer and dryer line and things were met with such uh, hesitancy that then they changed One of their slogans was Winchester as good as the gun. And what that was meant to do was to take the equity that they had built up with the history of their gun line and saying that you're going to buy this washer dryer, you're going to buy this fridge and it's as good as the gun. 
So like they were trying to ride the coattails of the Winchester name to be able to sell these products and it just didn't work. I mean, there, there's, um, multiple accounts I read out there where these guys would go and they would check on the stores and there's nobody in the stores. And the other thing that you got to remember about these stores, so they were run totally different than how we are familiar with stores today. Those stores, you had a lot of employees in those stores in different areas of the store to be able to help you. So like if you had clothing, you had a guy or a gal working in clothing. You had knives, maybe camping, something like that. You had somebody in there. So you had multiple people working in various departments. So you had a lot of employees that had to get paid. Like you don't see that in any store today. So like you don't see that in, you know, Kohl's or Walmart or Target. Like, you know, you can go into a Target and there's six people working, right? Right. So they had that vast, you know, overhead already that they had to get through and then they had to pay everybody and stuff like that. So unfortunately they had just set themselves up to fail and, and, if they would have just contracted those things out like uh, Simmons did for the most part, I just wonder if it would have been different. Like, you know, I don't understand why they didn't go to Collins and say, Hey, listen, we want you to make our axes for us. Like, why would you go and buy Mac X company? I think probably, you know, as a business standpoint, you look at, okay, I want to have, <clears throat> excuse me, not Corona. I want to have uh this product produced for me, I'll go to whatever company and get it produced. Well, then you start looking at profit margins and, and, and return on investment and that, all that stuff. And then they start thinking, well, what if we owned the company? You know, so then they, they buy the company and produce it themselves. Now they're, you know, putting more, you know, quotation marks, more money in their pocket. Um, doesn't always work out good. I mean, yeah, and I think that you you're absolutely right, and that's why they did it. But I and I don't know. Like I think that they that they should have looked at EC Simmons and been like, hey, these guys they know what they're doing. They they have the distribution. Like why don't we just sort of try and copy that? Then we can use the Winchester name and and you know. So I don't know. They just they got too big, too fast, um, throwing money around everywhere. They were having lavish parties. Um, all kind of stuff, and it, it was nuts. I mean, it's absolutely nuts to think just what a cluster that they were based off of that name that I knew as growing up from a kid and their guns and just they had like this mystique about them, like, oh, Winchester. And they had that logo with the, the cowboy riding on the horse, and, you know, he's got his gun and, you know, the horse is, you know, stampeding off, and it's just like you have that mystique about them. And, like, I never knew. I was like, man, this company was really run bad. For, for many, many years. So it's weird. And then one of the side questions then that came up is that if you ever notice that Winchester font and the King Cutter font obviously look very similar, right? So that's one of the things that guys originally got into and said, was this King Cutter axe? Is it a fake? Cause it looks like Winchester, stuff like that. Well, if you actually look at their logos pre merger, so like pre, what are we talking about? Pre 1922, right? Yeah. That font looks very, very similar. Another important thing to bring up. Um, I don't know if we touched on it or not. I was just looking on Winchester's website right now. I kind of wondered where they're at. Um, but fonts changed over time. Um, a lot of tool companies, you can actually date 
what period that tool was made on based off the font. Like I know one that sticks out in my mind the most is Snap-on because I deal with, you know, as a mechanic, I've dealt with Snap-on tools my whole career. Their font changed over the years, and that's actually how they date their tools. So if you get an old Snap-on tool and you want to know what the what when it was made, you can actually there's a, a spreadsheet with the different fonts on it that tell you when it was made. So fonts change over time. Which is a very good point. And, you know, there, there's different reasons for that. Maybe people, companies, you know, mergers, takeovers, things along that line. But, um, it's, it's definitely very interesting to, to figure out. But, uh, one of the other side things that comes along with this is, uh, the role of Kelly in and around 1912. And the questions that I'm asking, like, so why would American Accent Tools sell that plant to Kelly, your number one competitor? And you're selling that plant, and it's right there in your backyard of Pittsburgh. Like, why would you do that? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, we'll be talking a little bit more about this next week if we can get True Blood on. If not, we'll we'll sort of dive into this either next week or maybe the week after that. But one of the things that I found, and a lot of guys that I mentioned can corroborate this, and I think I talked about this last week. There is some serious shady stuff going on between Kelly and American Accent Tool from about 1909, 1910, all the way up through 1921. And one of the things I can tell you is that I found out that W.C. Kelly, the president of Kelly, was buying stock in American Accent Tool Company as early as 1912, 1911. He was buying stock on a personal basis in his main competitor, which leads me to believe that something was going on there. So if you look at the documentation uh, with American Axe and Tool Company, they obviously, they, they everybody joins in 1889. They basically get things rolling in 1890. Um, <coughs> from about 1890 to about 1905, they are, in fact, the dominant force in axes. Depending on what you read, they control anywhere from 50 to 80% of the, the axe market. Kelly is still alive. Warren is still alive. Plum is still out there for whatever reason. They didn't ask those guys to join or else they said, no, we don't really know that yet, blah, blah, blah. But 1909, 1910, W.C. Kelly starts buying stock in American Axe and Tool Company. Um, 1912, Kelly Axe buys that plant off of American Axe Tool Company, which makes no sense to sell that to your biggest rival. They then immediately turn around and sell it to Mac Axe Company. So w- what it looks like is that the plant partially burns down in 1909. Kelly buys it in 1912. Did did American Axe take everything out of it? Did they sell them some of the equipment? Uh, a couple of the references state that Kelly bought it, basically gutted everything, and then immediately t- turned around and sold the building to Mac Axe, which then he had to go in and then buy all the equipment and bring it back in. So we will expand on this because this is really fascinating to me because I don't quite know all the rules and regulations as far as what you could and couldn't do from a business aspect. Um, but buying stock in them, there's, we'll talk about who was the president at various times during the company with Hubbard and then Hubbard's son. And there's a couple other very interesting guys that were president that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then turning around and buying a plant in 1921 and what that looked like. The other thing I, I was able to find a lawsuit between American Fork and Ho and the government basically trying to recoup or not recoup some money, but then also not have to pay more money on their Kelly purchase. And this was 11 years after they bought them. 
So there was still litigation for whatever reason going on in the courts with American Fork and Hoe and their purchase of Kelly. Uh, this would have been in 1941-42. And I found that very interesting because I was like, what the heck is going on? So, again, more questions and answers. It, it's absolutely fascinating. And at the same time, it drives me totally bonkers. But we'll continue to dig in. We'll continue to research. I appreciate the guys that are helping out. And uh, we'll go from there. So, yeah. We will see what happens. I'll get to the bottom of the whole thing in the, of the plant in Beaver Falls. Um, I'll probably have to go and spend like four days actually in the courthouse trying to dig through documents. That should be enjoyable. Did, but, you, uh, did you Google Earth it? Google Earth it? I did, and that's how I found it. It took me forever to find an address for the company. And then uh, once I did, it makes sense. It's, it's on First Avenue, which if you look at the plot of Beaver Falls, runs right along the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple old plants that are still there, brick plants with huge smokestacks, which like a kid at Christmas, I'm hoping that that was part of the original plant. Uh, but I don't know, but where the actual, um, one of the main addresses that we found, it's just a concrete slab. But if you had 800 guys employed there, I mean, we're not talking about no little rinky dink business. We're talking, it had to have been blocks and blocks and blocks right. to be able to, to be able to do that. So, and especially if there was a fire in 1909, it partially burned down, but then they continued to use it. Um, I'm hoping that the, that the part that they continue to use is what I can still see today. However, I don't know that. I have reached out to the businesses that are in there, but I don't know, you know, especially with everything going on now. So who knows? But it'd be cool to walk that area just to see if there's any, any, anything still there, equipment or whatever, axes, material, something. I'll get to that. It's obviously with everything going on, we're, we're in a really weird time. Like I was telling Shannon, I'm like, doesn't this figure like I, I finally figure out like where a nearby axe plant is and I should probably not go there. Right. <laughs> I'll probably go and, uh, and check it out here. We'll see what happens, especially as a, it's a good way to get rid of this cabin feveritis that, that we all got, but we'll see how that goes. But, uh, anybody has any info? If anybody has any questions with that, um, if you have examples, pictures of those king cutter axes, maybe Winchester axes, things like that, feel free to send those in. Uh, you can send them to, uh, the Facebook page for double bit axe company. You can send them to the Instagram page for legitimate podcast. You can send them to me personally on Facebook if you want. Um, however you want to get them to us, killer, you know, whatever. Yeah. I'd be interested to, to take a look at those to try and put this puzzle together a little bit more. So, Again, we're not done. This is still a work in progress, and we'll get there. It's going to take time, and it's going to drive me probably crazy, but we'll get there. So, do you have do you have a, like a uh, a shorthand version of what we know now? I do. I do. Okay. Yeah. Run us down that real quick. So we have the plant from Joseph Graff through Winchester, which we already talked about, right? We have the merger of Winchester and King Cutter in 22. We have then the the Roaring Twenties, where then they're producing all those axes with what we think is the same font, things like that. What we don't know is where they all produced in New Haven, where they all produced in Beaver Falls, or some sort of combo of that, where large axes produced in Beaver Falls, smaller axes, hatchets, things like that produced in New Haven. Um, what we don't know then is what happened to the Beaver Falls plant, when it happened, 
Was there a transition then in the 20s where it was shut down and everything moved to New Haven? Did it make it through the 20s? And then Winchester files for bankruptcy on the, in 1931. What happens to the plant after that? And it's really surprising that I can't find it. I've looked through newspaper articles um, for the area. You would think that if they came and closed that plant down and say 100, 200, up to however many hundred of guys were now out of a job, that that, that would be news. And I can't find it. Doesn't mean it's not out there. We'll continue to look. Um, King Cutter, Winchester, they dissolve in 1929. They go their separate ways. The last Winchester acts that I can find in a catalog is in the E.C. Simmons catalog in 1930. I show no record of any Winchester axes after that. Now, I assume that there's a Winchester axe made after 1930, 31. I don't know that as of yet. So if anybody has any old catalogs, uh, I cannot find it in a Belknap catalog, which would sort of make sense because they, they might be competing. Um, I can't find it in a King Cutter, E.C. Simmons catalog. And a couple of the other random catalogs that I've checked, I can't find a Winchester Axe. So were Winchester Axes actually in a 10-year period, give or take? 20, 20 through, say, 29 or 30. That's one of the things that we got to answer because if I did not really know that, I assumed Winchester was made up at least through World War II. So King Cutter carried on. Yes, Winchester absolutely. not. Is sort of where we're at right now. As far as making axes, Winchester did carry on. That Olin group that bought them uh, continued to make rifles. They secured more rifle contracts. They sure. got into they got into ammunition. They supplied a great deal of ammunition in World War II. I forget the number of rounds that they gave to the or they they supplied to the government in World War II. I want to say was 16 billion rounds. Wow. Don't hold me to that. That might be wrong, but that's the figure that I thought I saw because I was like, holy. Holy cow. So, so if you're thinking Winchester dissolves right around 30, 1930. 31 is when they go into what's known as receivership. So basically it's like a reorganization, bankruptcy, things like that. And then this Olin group who had Winchester ties before, they were more into ammunition and things like that. They then come and buy Winchester basically then because they wanted to say, well, now I can make the rifle and I can make the ammunition. And basically what they did is that they immediately come in and that they cut all of the, what they deemed as unnecessary. So cutlery was a huge loss for them. I guess they were making knives and forks and stuff like that. And nobody bought it because it was too expensive. Uh, the washing machines out, refrigerators out, m- other miscellaneous like home goods, stuff like that. And then it, it just says and various tools. So my assumption is, is that seeing that we don't have a lot of history, at least as of right now, after 1931, the axes got the axe, so to speak, and were no longer produced after that, which from a reorganization, trying to cut your costs, get get back to the basics, it would make sense. So would you say that the King Cutter carried on the Winchester font after the 30s? Would you say that those would be late 30s? So I guess the question next is, why? They just uh, have stamps? I, I would say that there's two main reasons for that from what I can see. So in the 1930 E.C. Simmons catalog, all King Cutter axes, every single one, hatchet, axe, whatever it is, has the what we call the, the main King Cutter logo. That's the rounded triangle with the bar going through it. It says King Cutter. Okay. Right. 
you do not see one axe or hatchet in there with just the king cutter name as what we used to see earlier that which would be in that Winchester font. You don't see it. So that's 1930 after the separate one year after the separation. You do see it with the the shield logo and king cutter like maybe after that. But there's not one axe in there with just that king cutter in the Winchester font which I found really interesting. All right. Now, we go further down the line in the 30s. As they transitioned, they kept that font, and I'll share a picture in a couple of the catalogs. It has the logo, but then it also has the king cutter, and it's like the name that you have come to trust over the years, and it has king cutter in that Winchester font. You know, and it, it goes on to describe then that this is where they're going. So it's almost like they're trying to tie the past to the future and where they're going. Yeah. Now, after that, in the mid-30s into the late 30s, there is an example on a 1939 hatchet that just says King Cutter on it in that Winchester font. No no logo, no you know rounded triangle, blah, blah, blah. It just says King Cutter, very plain, uh, which who knows why. Um, manufacturing, obviously, axes and hatchets, the popularity has fallen off. I'm sure that sales were declining to a point you obviously had in the 30s. Not the greatest time economically, so probably they're trying to cut costs, make a product. You know, if I can do it and not have to put that big fancy logo in there with whatever that process looked like, it's probably going to cost me less, and then I'll have a higher profit margin is what I assume. But, yeah, King Cutter did go. Uh, E.C. Simmons then, and then they sold out to uh, – they sold out to, what, Shapley or Shapley, however you want to say it, in 1940. So – So much mystery. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. So good thing I don't have any hair because then I can't pull it out. Right. So we'll continue to dig in on this. Like I said, anybody has any help, information, pictures, articles, news clippings, whatever it is, please feel free to send those in. I know that the guys that, like I said, that have been helping have been a tremendous, tremendous help and asset. So that's sort of where we're at, man. Yeah. What else? What else you got? Or is that's that's probably enough. Huh? Yeah, that's that's it for me. I gotta absorb what we just talked about. Listen back to it. Yeah, and be like, man, I would. I sort of hope Mike just shuts up at some point. <laughs> now, but I I want to. I actually want to say something. I've had many people actually reach out and uh, compliment your knowledge. So don't think that it's going unnoticed. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, it's. It's just something that really interests me. And again, poor Shannon, that gets pounded with the questions, but um, it's something that we'll get to the end of. And then hopefully I'll be able at some point here to take this piece of history and be able to condense that, give a nice, nice, easy to follow situational timeline and what was going on. But then not only for us axe guys, I was talking to a couple of the people at Winchester and I was like, you know, this is a really interesting sort of subset piece to Winchester and what was going on. I'm like, none of you guys know. I'm like, none of you guys care, which again, I, I, I get that. I'm, I'm not really into Winchester guns, so I can get that. But I was like, you know, if I can get this and get this done and then be able to provide this to Winchester, you know, that's pretty cool. They, they were, they seemed appreciative of that. And it's also a little subset of King Cutter history and E.C. Simmons and what that whole thing looked like. So we'll see we'll keep digging at it and uh i just i really appreciate everybody in the help and in the comments and things like that so when did king cutter just disappear 
Well, Shapley bought them in what 40 and then they continued uh through the night what was it 65 and then they sort of fell off the map after 65 is again my general understanding don't hold me to that date because uh, I got enough going on in the 20s and the early 30s right now, but that's your general timeline for them. Shapely buys them. They change the logo. That's when you see Shapely in the logo. Uh, sometimes just the KK in the logo. There's, you know, they change that logo around. You can find that. Uh, that's readily available on the internet with their timeline and what that looks like as far as a logo aspect. Uh, but that's a whole other thing. I mean, you talk about somebody that had their name on everything. Right. Well, you know. Somebody. Somebody messaged me about that, um, reminding us that they they made cutterly cut cut, cut knives. <laughs> yes. And yeah, um, we didn't mention it because we just figured it was common knowledge. Honestly, uh, I I can't you can't look on eBay without seeing some sort of knife set or uh, Barlow knife with King Cutter on it. I mean, I've got a a freaking. Oh no, that's a cutmaster. I thought I had a king cutter knife display. But yeah, you just you can't you can't go on eBay without finding knives. So yeah, they they had their hands in everything. And like I said in the last podcast, they they it was like a big hardware store. I mean they just they sold everything with their name on it. Hand yeah. plank, spoke shaves. Um and I don't believe any of that was made by them. The, the vast majority, from what I can tell, it was not. It was subcontracted out. There are a couple claims that they did own a couple plants making various things, but not not anywhere on the level of the amount of products that they supplied to everybody. As far, again, from what I can tell, I haven't. And they had, they had their hands in everything. Another another marketing genius, really. I mean, they, they marketed everything. You know, you could yeah. find, I, I don't know, just research everything <laughs> the the backstory to them and how they started I, I won't get into it we don't have enough time we got to wrap this thing up but the backstory to them and how they started and the gentleman that started the company and what he was trying to do and what he wanted to provide to everybody is actually a really cool story if you get a chance sit down and read about it sometime but it just goes to that that american ingenuity and the spirit and capitalism and then he he obviously had success right off the bat, and then it just ballooned, and it obviously it, it just went nuts. And we haven't really seen anything like that since, as far as from that kind of perspective. Things that that we see now are more digital, you know, things like that. But it would be interesting to be able to walk back in time and walk into a hardware store, yeah. and you know, not have me steal all the axe displays and everything immediately, but then just be able to see like all the king cutter stuff and the various other brands that were out there and the attention to detail and the quality. Cause obviously those products, you know, were, were made in the USA. They weren't putting out cheap products, things like that. And the color schemes and the advertising, if you ever get a chance to look at one of the king cutter catalogs in the back of it is a section then that is just for the hardware stores and how you can buy the various aspects of advertising for King Cutter, the different um, the different pictures, uh, the 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 well, come on, Mike, the uh, like how they talked about the product and how they advertised it and how it all tied together. It, it's absolutely phenomenal, and that was just for the hardware stores to buy. You couldn't buy that as your regular Joe Schmo. So <clears throat> it's it's really fascinating. But we'll. Uh, We'll get going on that, but what else? What do you got to wrap us up with then, bud? 
So, man, stay safe and keep on uh, axing away. Absolutely. Uh, trying time right now for us all, as, as we've already known. Um, stay smart, stay safe, keep your loved ones safe, do what we got to do. Hopefully, another week, God, maybe two weeks. I mean, if, if we don't have this wrapped up by May 1st, I'm going to lose it. But um, I appreciate everybody, uh, the, the comments and the feedback on the podcast, especially from last week and in the hiatus have been really, really good. Tell your friends, tell your family, uh, make sure that they're listening. If you get a chance, leave some comments on whatever platform, stuff like that. That helps us out. Let's us know what we're doing and we appreciate it. Hopefully next weekend, if we can get everything all lined up, true blood will be around. We'll talk about Kelly and uh, Alexandria, especially what that looked like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And we will go from there, my friends. So thank you for turning in. Legitimus Podcast, out. See you guys.